Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Well, hello, hello. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and we're pausing just for a moment as we slide into 2015 to glance back over our shoulder at the year just gone. It's kind of a tradition right across the media, uh, TV and radio are doing exactly this. We're doing it too. Uh, last week we were with the guys at Londonist.com looking at their offering, some of the biggest stories and quirkier offerings from the website. Uh, this week we're looking back at the podcast, or listening back at the podcast maybe, at some of my highlights from a year of Londonist Out Loud. I've tried to make the selection from the earlier episodes. Obviously, you know, you listen to the show and you've recently heard the most recent episodes. So it kind of figures. And it was a year of incredible quality guests. So much information packed in that I, I, my, I feel completely overwhelmed. Uh, what the Barbican used to be was particularly interesting. The fact that there were shot towers along the south bank of the Thames. Amazing to try and recreate London in one's mind in these different ways each week. Two of the big stars of the show in 2014 did exactly that sort of reimagining. Bradley Garrett, who uh, appeared on several episodes, is all about exploring the bits of London that uh, perhaps are off limits. Wonderful though he is, he's had a fair crack of the whip, so it's to uh, somebody else who reimagines London in their own unique way that we turn first. John Smallshaw is a poet and guide, and he has a very uh, unusual take on London. And I met him south of the river. We'd already talked about the Winchester geese and the Golden Hind, and we found ourselves in a back street not far from London Bridge Station. Bear Gardens, the site of the last burr-baiting pit in England. And burr-baiting was uh, the most popular form of entertainment in Elizabethan England for some time. And then them other theatres came along, you know, the ones where men dress as women, those kind of theatres... And uh, someone from over in the city sent an order that said those kind of theatres must close on a Thursday to allow burr-baiting theatres to continue. Hmm. Make of that what you will. I suppose for the listener who doesn't know about bear baiting we probably ought to explain that. 
Oh, okay then. Well, it's a blood sport and uh, quite cruel and vicious setting dogs against bears. But as bears, and I don't mean teddy bears, bears were an expensive commodity, they generally used bulls and they would gamble on the outcome. Well, not necessarily the outcome, perhaps on which dog would lose which leg first. Sounds like good, wholesome entertainment. Ah, of course, splendid stuff. Well, we're out of Bear Gardens now, and which, uh, which street is this? I knew you were going to ask me which street this was. I haven't got a clue, but it's the street where the Rose Theatre stands. <laughs> that is not on the list of approved questions. Oh, I should have read it more carefully. This isn't the most attractive of streets, I must say. Actually, it's got some fabulous stuff on this street, and we're just coming past one of the most fabulous bits. Now, here, the Rose Theatre, built 1587. As you can see, the first Elizabethan theatre of Bankside. And it's actually an archaeological digging progress, or work in progress. If you come down on my tour on Saturday, you can come inside the theatre free and see what they're digging up old things preferably uh, there is a film show as well and I do allow you 10 or 15 minutes to sit down while I have a cigarette outside because I'm old fashioned and I still smoke but this is where Shakespeare he performed here with Titus Andronicus and Henry VI part 1, Christopher Marlowe the writer in residence and he probably owned the theatre because he'd borrowed a whole pile of dosh off the man at the bottom of the road Mr Chumley Chumley's Alehouse, 800 and something pounds back in the 1500s. That's like a 10 billion today. Something tells me Chumley was on the fiddle. But anyway, by 1605, 18 years later, the lease on this land had not been renewed. And it sort of faded into obscurity. And when they dug it up, when they dug out the foundations for this monstrosity that's rising here now, they came upon the earlier foundations... And the museum said, oh, wow, we found the rose. And there was, this street was full of famous people. Save the rose, save the rose. And, of course, it's now being saved. And there you are. And that's my story. Shakespeare left, of course. But he didn't go far. He went over here. And I'm going to give you some poetry over here. Yes. <laughs> Did you expect poetry on this tour? Tough, you're going to get it. You said not an interesting street, but look at this bridge we're walking on. No, 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 I said not an attractive street. Okay, attractive, vaulted ceilings on a bridge. Okay, that just got much more attractive. As Fred Dibner would have an orgasm if he could, this is beautiful. Beautiful bridge. I guess I didn't expect to find somewhere quite so apparently residential, this close to the river. Yes, it is, and this is a listed building here. This is the site, and you can't see anything really, of the original Globe Theatre. Shakespeare's masterpiece, yes. And probably built from some timbers from a theatre in Shoreditch, which Shakespeare was associated with at one time. Uh, how do they know it's here? They can't, they can't excavate because these are listed. That would be like English Heritage v English Heritage. They sound like Jarndyce v Jarndyce, a Dickens novel. Great stuff. Underground there's a car park. And when they were doing that, they came upon timbers and jewels and beads and bits of coins. And, and a museum of London. My God, we found the globe. We've been looking for it forever. 
it's here it's under here and there's some pictures of it and the old medieval bridge and St Paul's and the Southwark Cathedral the oldest Gothic church in London look at the bridge what a marvellous bit of engineering look at the city look at the spires oh wonderful wonderful stuff would you like some poetry here well, I feel quite overwhelmed already. So, uh, oh, yes, I'd, I'd like to be further overwhelmed. Right, here we go. I call this one. Uh, can I tip before you go you on? Can, you can ask what you like on this tour. I've been putting your pronunciation of beer baiting down to your Lancastrian roots, but in fact, on, on this picture here, it's yes. labelled B-E-E-R-E, beer yes, baiting. you see, you thought it wrong, didn't you? Listen, it's a, that's, that's great, actually, and you just give me something else I'm going to include in my tour. Oh, you thought I was making up look beer baiting. <laughs> Actually, it sounded like my dad then. My God, I'm turning into my father. OK, one quick bit of poetry, yeah? A couple of minutes. I call this one The Ghost of Frederick Rye. And it's probably about myself. Writings become the annotations, the exclamations in the margins of my life. I am stifling in the sutures of some silicon-filled future where the fact becomes a fiction and with a predilection for affection I search out with some conviction to look for something more. In the corners of my eyes where constellations live and die and where stars are born and burn, I turn into inner space hoping there I'll find a place where this pen that meets the page is divested of its rage and in the margins once again only peace and ink blots shall remain. Books are made to frame these words. Why abound things? Aye, some with sturdy spines. Many times I have been taken far away from where I lay into another world within this world. And in the whirling of narcotic free, the story, this is the me, the light, against the night, the wrong way round, the day that breaks without a sound and yet remains unbroken. A token that will win no prize, more constellations in my eyes. Progressively, I believe in more and more of my own lies and surprisingly I knew this would occur. This event was written in the margins when I wasn't there but was read and readily digested as another fiction. Fact. Was it something that I missed or lacked? In the margins life is difficult and to define a future has no future but the snippings of another suture binds the wounds and hurts a bait. I would not write against the margins of my fate nor take a page again to sate my rage again. I must behave again. I must be brave again. In and on a dusty manuscript where one more dream was stripped and one more life was ripped to shreds. I put to bed these haunts. I thank you. John Smallshaw, the man for whom the word inimitable was made. That was January. Skip ahead to March, and uh, well, we were heading to the east of London. I think it's technically the northeast of London, actually, and the gradually opening Queen Elizabeth Park. And I'm not going to deny that it was quite a treat to be able to get a poke around in the orbit as part of this mission. The person in charge of the transition of the park from Olympic site to something that can be used by everybody was Dr. Philip Askew. We should uh, describe the uh, tower itself. I've been keeping an eye on the thing over the last few years. I wasn't quite sure what I'd expect to find in the drum-like room at the top of it. How, how far up are we, by the way, do you know? Uh, I think we are uh, crumbs now. I used to have these sorts of facts etched into my brain. Um, I think we're about uh, 120 metres up. 
I could be wrong. Yeah, I, 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 probably, you've yes, so the, we're looking at some of the publicity here. One one four meters in here. In fact, um, I was interested in the uh, the number of steps. Does it say it on here? Oh, no, it's not on this one. I think it's something like two hundred and fifty odd steps that uh, bring us up to. In fact, I've got it on that bit of paper. We'll look at that later. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's about two hundred and fifty steps. We were just trying to find some comparisons. If you uh, wanted to walk up to uh, this observation deck, it's about half of what you'd uh, do if you were putting in the, uh, the the effort at St Paul's Cathedral. But of course, you can come up by elevators here, and they shot us up at high speed. And uh, we've arrived in a deliberately airy room. I think the idea uh, is is to create a sense of instability, which is quite an unusual thing to go for at the top of a (laughs) tower. Um, Could you talk about these mirrored panels? Because these seem particularly unusual to me. Well, the mirrors are really about... uh, when, when, When you come to this you come out of the lift and you come into this space you you're confronted by this fantastic view over london you can see canary wharf you can see the shard uh, you can see some of the other peculiarly shaped buildings which are appearing in the center of london so you get this stupendous panoramic view but in addition to that you get these very careful and cleverly designed mirrors which reflect the view in various ways so for example where we're standing and looking out towards canary wharf um uh, on, on both sides of us are these mirrors which actually show the same view but upside down um, and then as you move around the mirrors they are, are curved and worked in a particular way to, 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 to give this very peculiar perspective of London um, and, and this part of London and so for example as we're walking along here uh, we, we, we were seeing the city upside down and now we're looking at ourselves in what looks a little bit like a funfair mirror um, slightly distorted quite intriguing and quite interesting I, I feel like I'm seeing myself on a um, on a 3D cinema screen. Yes, it's a bit like one of those sort of uh, giant cinema screens, isn't it? And uh, quite quite interesting. And as we carry on walking round and, and look back again, we'll get we'll get more views um, of, of, of the city and of places. And the idea is that we've got a, we've got a view of Henry. Again. We've now got a view of Henry. Now, uh, yes, can't quite work out whether Henry's upside down or what. But um, you get these interesting sort of takes on on London and its skyline, which I think. Of course, the view is fantastic, there's no doubt about that, but in a way, it sort of adds a different flavour and a level to it. Shall we uh, peer out at a particularly interesting bit? Where would be the best, best vantage point to uh, get a glimpse of your work? So, at the moment, we're looking down towards Pudding Mill Lane uh, DLR station. Oh, before, before you go on, Pudding Mill Lane, can you, do you happen to know the provenance of the name? I don't, I'm afraid, no. no. no it's I've a wonderful wondered, name, yeah. it's a fantastic name. Um, but, uh, Pudding factory? No, surely could, there can't be such a thing. Well, there could well have been. I, I just don't know. I mean, for example, um, uh, you know, this this part of London is, as, as I said earlier, very rich in history. So over to our, our right, there's a sort of brick-built warehousey-looking building that used to be the Bryant and May Match Factory. Is that the one with the two sort of watchtowers it coming? Is, yes, yes. So, so uh, again, a very historic. You know, people, mm. many people will, will, will know Bryant and May matches or i think they may still exist i don't know but um uh, but that that's where they used to make them and there are all sorts of uh, stories about rather unfortunate stories actually about but about people who used to make the matches and dip them in the phosphorus to make them burn and of course that 
didn't do very good things to them in those days. So that's a sort of example of, of the past here, but very important building. Well, to tie that into another episode uh, that will either just have aired or just be about to air, we're going to be examining the skulls of uh, victims of phosphorus poisoning. Oh, fantastic. Oh, well, there you go. Yes. <laughs> so there's a bizarre tie-in. <laughs> um, below us is one of the canals, which uh, runs, uh, you know, one of the, one of part of the canal network in this, in this part of London. Um, uh, and then... Um, We've got the the Greenway, which uh, is the uh, walkway which runs um, through this part of London. You can see people walking on it now. Um, We built this uh, greeny yellow building below us called the View Tube, which is a great place to come and get a coffee, but also there's art exhibitions and such like there. And then right below us is a a new lawn which we've just installed, which uh, is, is going to be an events lawn. Uh, I believe it's capable of holding about 20,000 people when when it's completely full. Um, And uh, the idea is that uh, uh, we can have, you know, some quite serious events below the orbit there, which would be a great place to to have them. In the distance, in fact, just on the other side of the railway, which is the railway which runs from Liverpool Street out to uh, Essex and Suffolk, you can see some of the allotments we've just built with their sheds on, which are replacements for the allotments which we had to move pre-games. That's very interesting. That they should be uh, sort of reinstated. How have they been allocated? Well, there was a there is there was and there is a, an allotment society and called Manor Gardens Allotment Society, and we've we've worked with them over the years to replace the allotments that that, you know, that, they, that they have. So we we have some of them in the South Park down here. Because there was, uh, of course, a lot of displacement that w- was attendant on the, the game's landing here. And uh, although ostensibly it was uh, pretty much derelict land, there were a number of small businesses yes, and yes, workshops yes, and yes. Uh, scraps of playground and, mm. and bits and pieces like that. Uh, so it does sound as though the responsibility to those individuals, you know, it's not as though they've just been swamped or shoved out entirely. They've, they've been accommodated. No, I, I think, I mean... I- I'm not au fait with the full history, but largely they have been accommodated, I believe. Um, I mean, for example, where the stadium uh, is now, uh, there was a, a salmon smokery called Foreman's, uh, and Foreman's uh, still exists. It's just been moved a few hundred metres in one direction, and uh, uh, it still, I, I think it still supplies Fortnum Masons with smoked salmon. Yes, just on the other side of the canal, yes, I believe. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. Well, let's, uh, let's mooch around a little bit. We're passing by another of the mirrors... That's a very disconcerting effect. Never has reality seemed so artificial. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, and looking in mirrors, yes, not a good idea sometimes, but anyway. <laughs> I must say, it's very, very peaceful up here. I, I don't know, we've got a really uh, gorgeous day to be looking out at London. It's but day, th- yes. there's also something about the sense of uh, the bowl of the city. We can see the various hills around it and it feels um, suddenly a much smaller place in a very a very pleasant way actually I think what's so great about getting up to places like this and I guess you can do it in other towers in London and, and other high places but you, you're quite right of course London when you're on the ground feels sort of flat if you like but up here you can you can really see the, the, the landscape, the topography and how, in a sense, London sort of sits within it, as you say. It starts to feel like a town in some bizarre way, doesn't <laughs> Almost, it? yes. As Maybe opposed to just an endless... Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to head outside and uh, well, this is probably uh, an opportune moment to get a word from our sponsor. London Est Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. 
Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to a CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. We've had quite a brace of doctors on the show this year. One of their number is Dr. Will Pettigrew, whose specialism has been in the history of the East India Company, a venerable institution, and one that has radically transformed the Docklands area of London in all sorts of ways. Some of the architecture left over from their heyday still remains, and it was in one such ex-warehouse that I met with Dr. Will to discuss exactly what we could find out about London by looking at the history of this company. If you want to imagine the most dynamic period in, in, in London's economic expansion, it's that period when the city stands in ruins. And ec- economists would, have an in, you know, would, would connect those two processes in a very important way. That is to say that uh, infrastructure projects, you know, imagine the rebuilding of the city as, as a giant infrastructure project, it's kind of high speed too. Um, pull together resources, uh, capture uh, entrepreneurialism, and give a kind of motion to an economy that's very, very important. That's part of the explanation. But the other explanation is that um, England is engaging with non-European trade in a much more serious and concerted way in that period because of these companies, East India Company, Levant Company, Royal African Company, uh, uh, Hudson's Bay Company to Canada, uh, uh, as is now, um, and these companies basically represent a, uh, a collusion of the collective entrepreneurial spirit of the city of London's mercantile elite and the will displayed by the absolutist monarchy of the later Stuarts, that is Charles II and James II, uh, to develop these economies so that they could benefit. The merchants would benefit and the monarchy would benefit. Why does the monarchy need to benefit at this point? Well, we've had the English Civil War in which the monarchy has really been exposed as a self-seeking organization that's not good uh, for the public interest. Um, the monarchy has to keep reaching to Parliament uh, to finance itself. It has to keep going to the populace to say, you know, will you grant the money to finance the monarchy? Overseas trade provides a way of, of short-circuiting that, of, of bypassing Parliament, because if you can develop overseas trade and tax it, and funnel it through your own coffers, then you don't need Parliament anymore. And presumably the monarch was the one issuing uh, various licences to trade and so forth. So uh, I've got the impression in certain industries at the moment, uh, the food industry is one that always gets mentioned, that there are sort of two or three big companies and that's, that's about your lot. Uh, and the same might be said of uh, perhaps oil pr- production and, and things like that. So it doesn't sound on, on the face of it as though we've moved very far beyond uh, what you're describing here with the exception of a sort of monopoly law. Mm-mm. Yeah, these are certainly big multinationals. In a sense, they're the founding generation of big multinationals, and they are given monopoly privileges. You know, that's, that's kind of legitimate in the 17th century. As I mentioned before, it's really the reward for hazarding um, and adventuring into these very risky overseas trade. No one would invest in them unless they had the right to uh, monopolize them at the same time. I suppose the difference with these companies in the 17th century is that they are much more diversified in terms of what they export and what they import. And they're much more interesting, I think, politically and socially. Um, they're a, re- a relationship with government and the constitution and with political thought and with economic thought is, is much richer and much fuller. Corporate bodies today um, tend to be more specialist. Um, they tend to seek monopoly, but they, they're not allowed to. Um, 
and uh, the relationship with government is just a straightforward one of uh, you know attempts to lobby policy and success at times but but not it doesn't have the same symbiotic relationship as the 17th and 18th century companies like the East India Company had uh, with the formation of the English state. Could you develop that a little more then? Yeah, think of a few examples. Yes, they're founded, these companies, by a specific branch of the constitution. That is the monarchy. And they are founded in order to buttress the the economic, uh, political and constitutional power of of, of the monarchy. But, of course, over the course of the 17th century, the Constitution is, is, is unsettled by the view that Parliament should really be in control of the, the decision-making apparatus of the state. So opposition um, from merchants who are, who are frozen out of these companies assumes a kind of constitutional importance uh, in and uh, of itself. So over the course of the 17th century... Um, Outsiders into the companies are able to develop political ideas and economic ones in opposition to the companies that have an effect on the way in which the economic theory is conceptualized. Um, this also has an important international connotation. The English economy for, for two, three, four hundred years before the foundation of the East India Company had been built solely around the export of wool and woolen cloth. So when the East India Company is founded, the English uh, merchants who run it are trying to find a, a good that they can export to uh, Indonesia or, or, or India. You know, what are the people in Indonesia going to do with thick woolen jumpers, essentially? It's a difficult call to make commercially to export what England had been exporting for a long time. So from the beginning, they work out the only thing that we can uh, successfully export to India is cash. That is precious metal. So the, the East India Company becomes this giant kind of funnel for precious metal uh, excavated in South America uh, into uh, those great uh, bullion-consuming economies of China uh, and Asia. But 16th and 17th century economic theory says that the wealth and power of the government derives from how much precious metal you can, uh, you can bring into your country. Right? You've got to bring in as much and you've got to sit on it and uh, the wealth of the country comes from storing all that gold and silver. So the East India Company basically has to reinvent economic theory by saying, actually, rather than uh, hoarding all this precious metal, if we trade it and exchange it for other goods and commodities, our economy will grow and multiply. And this is a foundational insight of, of, of modern classical economic theory. So out of the desire to lobby, to justify the East India Company's privileges and trades come these very important uh, shifts in economic theory and political thought. Yes, it sounds like a crowbar has been wedged between the, the, the two ideas have been prized apart, haven't they? The, uh, the, the inherent value of an object and the sort of notional value of it. We're, what are we doing for currency at this point, by the way? Are we still in a, a place where coins can be clipped and all that stuff? Is it, is it still the, the value of the metal of the coin? That's right, yeah. We're in a kind of a, a period in which the intrinsic uh, metallic value of the, the coin is very important. The coins... Uh, when we, we have the Bank of England later in the 17th century... But each note issued by the bank, it, it is still understood to be convertible into precious metal. That relationship changes over the course of, the, uh, of, of history. But yes, we are, we are in a period here in which uh, currency's value uh, is determined by the understanding and, and, and the fact of a, of a precious metal content. 
Well, I haven't yet heard any uh, signs that the East India Company is going to do anything but uh, succeed and uh, go on forever. But, of course, uh, it's not around anymore, so something is going to go wrong somewhere along the line. Uh, We're going to find out what that might be after a a short word from our sponsor with whom we have an excellent commercial relationship. No, not a word from the sponsor. In fact, a word from September and another doctor, Dr. Tori Herridge at the Natural History Museum. Until I met Dr. Tory, I don't think I could have imagined that we'd find ourselves talking about woolly mammoths on Londonist Out Loud, but that's exactly what happened. Among, of course, other things, one of those things being women in science. We've been talking about endangered species, and Tori, you've been cultivating and uh, promoting and uh, reviving an endangered species. I think it's an endangered species, the uh, the female paleontologist. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, congratulations on doing what you're doing. Secondly, congratulations on the incredible name. And you mentioned before we started recording that you're fond of a pun. Uh, yeah. The organisation is called Trowel Blazers, yeah, which is a work of genius. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's some pictures on the on the front of the website and they are female scientists from across the years. Some of the photos are those very old sort of mid-Victorian ones where, in fact, the lady in the picture looks a lot like a fossil herself. Some of the others are more modern and you've got the Amelia Earhart types and uh, people with their heads in ditches and all sorts of stuff. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Going on, what is the scope of uh, Trailblazers? Trailblazers is a uh, website that aims to highlight the contributions of women to the trowel wielding fields of geology, paleontology, and archaeology. Um, gardening as well, I suppose, could come into it if anyone wants to submit, but no. Um, uh, because one thing that I came across as part of my own research, which really surprised me, was that the number of women working in these fields at a very early stage, because these are all very young sciences, were much, much greater than I realised. Now, my own research in the Mediterranean has involved following in the footsteps of one particular pioneering paleontologist called Dorothea Bate. Now, I use her archives, like her old diaries and her old maps, to go and find the places that she worked where she found the fossils we've got here in the museum today that I work on so I can go back to those places and bring modern methods to bear on the places she worked at to kind of try and get some more information about how old these fossils were. And in doing so, of course, I started to get to know Dorothea Bate a bit better. You sort of you can't help it when you read her diaries and things like that. But I always had this idea in my mind that she was this extraordinary, remarkable woman. I mean, think of that. She first came to the Natural History Museum in 1898 when she was just a, a teenager, like I think she was 19 years old. She walked up to the front door, I mean, this is the Victorian times, and she demanded to see the curator of birds. And he saw her. She asked him for a job and he said no. But she saw started she wouldn't leave. She started sorting bird skins and eventually he saw that this was not some flippity gibbet who didn't know what she was talking about. She really knew her stuff. And because she impressed him so much, they started a correspondence, he supported and encouraged her. And in nineteen oh one, in her early twenties, she went off to Cyprus on her first solo expedition quite extraordinary at that time you know and so I was like wow you know imagine that you know really really contravening the idea of the Edwardian and Victorian woman really brave you know, so unusual look at that breaking down the you know the bastions of the male establishment 
and that was a really beautiful story to tell and it really resonated with everybody I told it to except it wasn't actually correct because when she was on her next trip which was to Crete in 1904 on that trip, she happened to go by the excavations at a place called Gornia, which is one of the most important Minoan sites on Crete, probably more important than Knossos, the very famous place, um, which is often associated with the myth of the Minotaur. Now, Gornia was this incredible town, a whole Minoan town that was being excavated, and the person in charge of that excavation was a woman called Harriet Boyd Hawes, an American. And in her team were two other women, Blanche Wheeler and Edith Hall. So on Crete in one short period of time, was not one remarkable, trowel-blazing woman, but four. I mean, that just changes this idea. I mean, the idea that Dorothea Bate was unusual, I mean, she was remarkable, yes, but she probably wasn't as unusual. And that simple fact irritated me a whole lot more than, I think, just this general idea of one woman being forgotten. Now, you can't expect every single person's name to be remembered forever. Most people couldn't name an archaeologist at all from that time period, male or female. But if you ask someone to picture an archaeologist, I think, from the early 1900s, they would picture a man, a white man, with a beard. That's basically what you'd come up with. And if you told them there was a woman, you'd think she was something strange, something unusual, something to be a kind of a, a, a curiosity. But actually, there were hundreds of them. Well, now, hold on, I should probably, because you're quite right, I certainly couldn't name an archaeologist from that period, apart from Indiana Jones, of course. Mm-hmm. But what about your insider view? Is it the case that lots of names from that period are known and remembered and male? Mostly. I mean, but the names that people do come up with are mostly men. And most, and then the men are known better than the women. I think within the archaeology community, particularly when you're a specialist on a the site, then you know all the names. But I think more broadly, I mean, for instance, there was a recent BBC programme called The Secret History of Archaeology, and it forgot the biggest secret, which was there were women working. It re- think mostly referred to Mortimer Wheeler, who's a very famous and charismatic archaeologist who founded the Institute of Archaeology at UCL now. And um, he was a great TV personality. He was a real great populizer. And um, so because of that, there's a lot of archives of him. And so, of course, it relied very heavily on that. But it did mention one woman in that setting, a woman named Kathleen Kenyon, as, and it referred to her as his assistant. Now, Kathleen Kenyon was the director of the Institute of Archaeology. She was more than somebody's assistant. She was an incredible and important figure in her own right. And she was one of actually Wheeler's protégés, but not Mortimer Wheeler, a woman called Tessa Wheeler. Mortimer Wheeler's first wife and Tessa Wheeler used to really run the majority of these excavations and it was really with her and Mortimer together that changed the face of archaeology and trained up an entire generation they had this big excavation at a place called Maiden Castle in Dorset if you look at the pictures of that it's mostly women excavating there lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of young women coming through this is all slightly later this is the 20s so Dorothea Bates time slightly earlier even then there were all these women working in the field and that's what I think threw me because it's one thing to forget one person's name and it's a completely different you can excuse that right you can say okay you know she was a rare individual we can't remember everybody of course these odd ones get forgotten but when entire you know entire bodies of work entire schools of people just the entire concept of that type of archaeologist has disappeared from the popular imagination, then we've got a problem. Because if you look at a paleontology department today, when we see ourselves as doing much better, there's still a problem with gender disparity. There are still mostly men in senior positions. There's a lot of young women coming up. They don't always make it through to permanent jobs. But even so, there's gender disparity. We've got issues. We're not at gender parity at all. And it starts with like a very similar situation. You know, you've got quite a large number of women working, but 
who's going to remember us in a hundred years' time, potentially, unless we all make the effort to redo it? Because these women were there and they were doing really good, important work. At the time, their colleagues and their male colleagues, some were dismissive, but most treated them as, as equals, intellectually at least. And yet we've just written them out en masse from history. Now, what, what, these are the symptoms. What is the cause of this uh, malaise? I don't, I don't know, actually. I mean, a lot of it, I think, is um, because it's easier always to tell us a lone hero myth, whether it's male or female. And so we, we cling to... It's much easier to tell that story than it is to tell about the sort of messy, kind of slightly tedious reality of, of how research works, which is large numbers of people working together. So it's always easier to focus on one individual and tell the story around them. And so on one hand that works in favour of the of the people in power so the people who make the big professorships because they're the people who often yeah, you tell have a long and illustrious career and who have um, the power and the contacts to make the influences leave their archives behind and you know things like that and then also I think because we have our own agenda we think we also want to find these kind of unusual harrowings in the past too and so in some ways it helped in some ways maybe we wrongly try to um sort of exacerbate the difference by sort of saying how incredibly unique Dorothea Bate was or look how extraordinary Mary Anning was or things like that because it makes a better story and but if you keep on digging down there are a lot a lot a lot of women involved now it is also really important to remember that before the 1950s though very few of these women had professional positions but then very few of the men had professional positions but quite often we refer to the men as scientists and the women as amateurs so Mary Anning often gets referred to as an amateur paleontologist, but in fact, she was one of the few professionals around the time. She was making money out of her work. The rest were just gentlemen having fun around the edges of their fortunes. But yeah. <laughs> well, I feel, I feel reluctant. I mean, you're very good human about it, but it seems atrocious to me that, and I think it does to you as well, that this kind of cultural amnesia is going on. I wonder if we could linger on that for a moment longer and try and understand. Is it, I don't quite buy into the idea of something along the line of the victors writing the history. It doesn't seem like it's a, a winner-loser situation. I wonder if there's anything around the idea of women at a certain point in their career falling away for reasons of family, but it doesn't still really explain why their early work drifts not, away. Not really for these earlier women. You can't use that as an explanation. Mm. Some of them when they got married had to leave their jobs for because their husbands wanted them to or because they weren't allowed to continue working but actually particularly before the 50s when it wasn't a professionalized field so much most of them didn't they because they were doing it as amateurs and so they were just kept on working and um, most of them um actually a lot of them didn't get married and didn't have children there were some that did and some that didn't so harriet boy did get married and had kids but and continued working I mean, they all did extraordinary things as well like they were nurses in wars and you know they just they were there they would just go out there and get their hands dirty and everything they could do i mean incredibly adventurous individuals um from a very privileged background i mean there are, that's and i think that's a really important thing to remember that these were they were conventions it's not that it's good i'm not trying to say that that there wasn't any anti they weren't they were having to face or barriers but because most of them were from wealthy intellectual sets there were fewer barriers to their participation than maybe we envisage I mean so they didn't have to make money and they could do they had their own money and they could pretty much do what they wanted and that solves a whole manner of prejudices half the time and we should remember that today because yeah I mean if, if we think we've got a gender problem in science then we actually have a much bigger class problem an ethnicity problem I mean it's a very 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 white middle class upper class field
Around the middle of the year, we did a special interview in uh, the beautifully named Sunlight Square in Bethnal Green. And incidentally, the history of that name is all about soap. I was there to interview the artist Scanner, who was busy putting together an installation at the Museum of London Docklands for their exhibition, Bridge. So you've got people that you're, you're working with and who work for you from time to time and so forth. But it does mean, of course, that where other responsibilities and other pressures might come in on your time and on your attention and, and maybe even on your uh, confidence. I guess every artist has had a period where they're thinking, well, is this really up to the mark? Yeah. And you've got to keep yourself buoyant and afloat. Um, I was just wondering how you, how you go about handling um, some of the factors that don't really get talked about in art for obvious reasons. They're not the, they're not the sexy part. They're not even the reason that an artist is an artist they're the quite often the stuff that you would prefer the audience didn't know about because they probably won't be interested either but things like distraction things like boredom things like uh, possibly fear although fear can be a bit of a sexy one but which elements of your job do you find uh, most challenging distraction is a good word actually because it's it's always used in a really negative way but actually I remember my school reports when I was about 10 years old and it said you know Robin's a very good pupil but he gets easily distracted What's that? Also, no, Robin gets really easily distracted. And it's true. I haven't changed. And I find that quite tricky. You know, I have my list and I have to write the list because I know I'm going to suddenly think, oh, there's that other thing I should do, shouldn't I? Maybe I should do. But no. Uh, and I do that. You know, I, I try and maintain a discipline is what I try and do. I get up early. You know, I'm quite unlike most musicians. I get up around 6, 6.30. I work all day, finish at the latest around 5 to 6. And... I have evenings and I don't work at the weekend very rarely. And that's always been important to me. You know, the older I've got, it's been really important to have that kind of balance. But, you know, I haven't released a proper studio album in five years. I've done an awful lot of work. I've released a lot of CDs because I'm still in my head thinking, is there any value in it? Is there any reason to release a new album in that kind of caution, lack of confidence in that kind of way? Thinking, is there any, you know, do I have the... The, the power to do this do I have the kind of creative chops to do it in a sense I work best under pressure so what's great with my list here is it's people often approaching me or people I've been in conversation with talking about things that have to be done by a very particular date and I like it because then they're done and I have to finish them and you know yourself if you're writing you're being creative you're trying to do something it's very hard to be disciplined in that way but I'm very good with deadlines I never missed a deadline ever for work I'm always, always reliable. And I think that's how, and it's, it's something I've always spoken to students about if I give a talk at a university, it's how I've always managed to have work. It's how you manage to have a career. You couldn't work in a normal job if you're not generally reliable, at least, you know, or you could be trusted in a sense. And, you know, I've, I've sort of proved myself through the work I've done over the years that, you know, people do like what I do and they trust me. And so they come to me again and again. And that's one of the most rewarding things, actually, is actually having, let's not call them repeat clients, but people I can work with in a scenario in another way. Classic example of being where this failed is I worked with Steve McQueen. I know Steve pretty well. And uh, this is before he had his big successful movies. and said, hey, I'm working on this film. Would you be interested in writing the soundtrack to it? And I was too busy. And I, I thought it's going to be another piece in a museum, a kind of arty, fantastic installation, but I have no time to do it at that moment. Of course, it was one of his big successful films. You're thinking, no, it could have been 12 Years a Slave. It could have been, but there's always the future. You know, and he's a good person, so there's no reason that couldn't happen. But, you know, those, those kind of questions, those kind of distractions, I think is really important. You know, I, I take breaks. I get distracted. I surf through stupid websites. I look at funny videos, whatever it may be. 
it's important to remain human, you know, and you don't know because one of those distractions could lead you to think in another way completely, to rethink a process, to suddenly recharge you in a way. And if I get nowhere with a project or something, I just stop and do something else, take a walk or have a drink of water, go crazy, have a glass of water. Standing there. Yeah. What about boredom? Very rarely have I ever suffered from boredom, actually. It's, in a way, and it would sound arrogant, I almost long to be bored sometimes, in a way. You know, I sort of long for a moment so I can feel bored, but it hasn't happened, I can't remember the last time, actually. If I'm on a long train journey or plane journey, I'm occupied with things, if not in my head, in front of me, in a reading or listening to it. There are very, very few moments I'm ever bored, actually. I generally feel quite fortunate that I, I mean, it's, it's quite funny. I started thinking some years ago in your life, there are important things about a roof over your head, having work that's satisfa- you know, satisfactory and having friends or a relationship of some point. And I thought, you know, the most scary thing in all of those actually is the work thing. You know, when you work for yourself, it can be a bit tricky, you know. And, you know, there are moments where you could just get bored. So I constantly make myself busy anyway. I'm always doing things. There's never ever enough time to do things but then again that seems to be a conversation i seem to have with almost everyone i know there's never enough hours and i think who ate all the time when i was growing up you know who devoured it because i'm sure when i was a teenager maybe i had more time but i can say that up there at the top are all my diaries from the age of 12 i've never missed a day since i was 12 so i could pull down a diary and see if i was bored 30 years ago or 35 years ago it's quite funny i haven't done it but i'm curious to know you know who says Oh, it's Sunday. I'm so bored. I really wish I had something to do. I think I've ever been one of those people to get bored, actually. Of course, it's not always a good thing in the media when you become the story. But we made an exception this year because, of course, Londoness was 10 years old in 2014. I spoke to the founder, Rob Hinchcliffe, on a slightly sketchy internet connection from New York of uh, where we are now type questions and, and I suppose it sounds as though you've no vested interest so I can ask you these. First of all if there were one thing that you might suggest doing differently if you were back on the if you had your hands back on the reins is there any aspect of the direction that's been taken that you would have uh, steered differently? Um, Matt's asked me this before actually, have a coffee um, it's, it's, it's a hard one because I think going back to editorial voice, the bigger you get the harder it is to retain that editorial voice, the bigger the audience you get and the bigger the num- larger the number of writers you have. It's harder to maintain a clear one tone. Um, obviously, you know, if to kind of have that consistency is very, and have that, I guess, uh, the ability to have an opinion, a real very strong, you know, kind of opinionated edge to your voice. Um, the, so I think, it would be, I've always kind of wondered who's going to come along and in kind of what format and, um, like blow Londonist out of the war. Do you know what I mean? Who the, mm. the 20 year old's going to come along and mm. have something which is going to be, and I think that, I guess, the, like, I mean, I talked about this when we did the, ten, the little video for the 10 year anniversary thing at Londonist offices the other week. Like when we did, uh, the coverage of the 7 7 bombings. And it was a very much a kind of the end of that was very much a very subjective, you know, kind of impassioned tone to it, which I don't think they could do today on Londonist, which is now. And that's not a bad thing. It's just a different thing. You know, it's just a different audience. It's a different setup. Um, 
And I remember, you know, taking posts down about when the Pope visited because Mike wrote something about his um, his opinions of the Pope when the Pope visited London, which you know, and that was the kind of, it was we skated a bit close to it sometimes. We had like people who wrote for the site complaining about the site in those days. So, um, um, but you know, the enemy tried to sue us at one point because of something we wrote, and because we weren't. We didn't have anything to lose. I think that's the point because our audience was smaller and if something went wrong, we could just deal with it and carry on. But obviously, I think now with a bigger audience and a bigger team and lots more writers, it's logistically and kind of, I guess, politically harder to do that, um, which is just, you know, one of the things that happens when you get bigger. So I wouldn't necessarily go and change anything about London. Now it's just interesting to see how tone shifts over over the years. Um, there's a, a moderating effect then that a wider audience has on you, a pressure to find the middle ground. I think so, yeah. Um, I think so. I think there's, um, it's, and obviously the more writers you get, the harder it is to re- retain one editorial voice because you're getting more and more people into the mix. Um, and we were always very, I was always quite controlling, I guess, about how London sounded, you know, because, um, um, and I think that was, and I think once you get more and more people, it's harder and harder to do that. So you get more of a mix of, and that's a good thing in a certain way, but it's also, you know, I think people relate to a, to a, an editorial tone. Sometimes that's why people come back to specific writers and titles and, and sites and things like that. So, mm. um, it's, and it, but that, that gets diluted over time as you get bigger. And like you said, if you're just trying to kind of talk to more people, um, and attract more people, um, then it, that gets that gets tougher as well. But you're also, it, you know, there are good things about that as well. So it's um, it balances each other out, I suppose. So my final question, and thanks mm-hmm. by the way for taking time out of your holiday to uh, to talk <laughs> to us. Uh, when you look at the site now, what do you? Is it, and this is a deliberately open question. Uh, when you look at the site now, what do you feel about it? What do I feel about it? Um, I guess proud. Is that too cheesy? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Um, yeah, I do. I, I mean, it, it was very strange. I went in to see Matt and uh, Londonist Towers um, for the first time in a long time uh, a few months ago earlier this year, and there were six people sat around at a bank of desks typing away, and Matt was like, so this is the team, and I was like, Really? And like, these people get paid to sit here and do Londonist, do you know what I mean? And it's like, that is mind blowing. If you'd have gone back to my, uh, 20 something year old self and gone, these people, you know, in, in 10 years time, there's going to be a, a room full of people getting paid to do this. I would have just laughed in your face. Um, because it was just me at my desk kind of, um, sneaking, you know, uh, a post in whenever I could, you know, after my lunch. And so I think to, to have it grown to something which is, you know, and it's bizarrely, it's the thing that still, if I mention it to people, um, that I worked on it, they go, Oh, really? You, you know, you did Londonist. And I've worked on a lot of stuff in the last 10 years. And the, the Londonist is the, the thing that everybody, um, will you know, kind of perk up on and ask me about. So, and I think, and that's, you know, a credit to the people who've kind of taken and run with it since I left, uh, more than anything, I think. But yeah, I'm very proud that it's still there and it still represents a city, you know, I'm very proud of what we did in the few years that I was there, but um, the fact that it's still going and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere soon um, is 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 amazing. And it just reminds me of all the people I met. Well, I mean, that was the kind of for me the the thing that the greatest thing that I got out of it was just um, 
getting to meet some incredible people. You know, the people that wrote for the site in those days, so I still know them all now. Hmm. Uh, and they're all doing, you know, insanely um, creative and successful things now. And just being able to kind of meet up with them and see what they're doing now is, is, is fantastic. So that's a good thing for me. But yeah, it's just, it's, it's going strong. But someone will come out, come along and blow them out of the water eventually. It's going to be interesting to see who that is. <laughs> <laughs> that's a provocative note to answer. Um, you, it's early in the morning there in New York. What's your plans for today? Um, we are going to go and walk down the High Line. Um, very New York thing to do. The old railway line that's now kind of just one big long garden. There is a Jeff Koons exhibition at the Whitney Museum. The Whitney. So I'm going to might go and see that. Depends on the weather. And I'm going to go to Shake Shack and have a massive burger at some point. But that's it as far as plans are concerned. <laughs> no, no envy from me whatsoever. No, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> What's your plans for the rest of the day? I'm painting a wall. Oh, nice. <laughs> the the Shake Shack and the High Line look pretty good from where I'm standing. <laughs> Rob Hinchcliffe, thanks so much for taking the time. No worries, thank you very much. Well, we finished the year with what was potentially the most dangerous, alarming and comical moments on Londonist Out Loud from 2014, a brush with death in more ways than one at the Pathology Museum at Barts. Our host and very nearly the person seeing us out of this mortal existence was Carla Valentine. A bottle of uh, Mr. Muscle, what's the relevance to? (laughs) (laughs) That actually just has glass cleaner in it, and that's for me to clean my cabinets, of which I'm actually going to show you now. You you must spend your entire life cleaning. I I feel like I do, but then I did that as a mortician as well. It just seems to be something that's uh, that's involved in a lot of these jobs. So... Ah, the the famous cabinet. This is the cabinet of the uh, curiosities found within people's orifices. Um, Oh, I didn't understand what you were saying. I I see, right. (laughs) Yes, so these objects date from all sorts of different dates. Um, But the reason they're down on this floor is because they're not human remains. So we can have them down here. And I bring your attention specifically to the torch and the X-ray that we have here. And this is quite a funny story because it was, uh, it was removed from the rectum of an eccentric and uncouth-looking man, age 68, who said that he'd actually been assaulted by two drunken Irish men who'd pushed the torch in. And on further questioning, the story was considered to be quite improbable. So it's very much one of those I-fell-onto-the-hoover-type stories. Um, but what I like about this specimen is that we not only have the torch, but we have an X-ray that probably somebody just took and kept for the fun of it. Um, and it shows you the torch in situ in the, uh, in the pelvis. I'm not normally lost for words. <laughs> I, I feel you should keep going. I can, uh, I can show you another one that's fairly similar. Um, there's, there's a, it's notable that there are a lot of objects here that are about six inches long. <laughs> and, and phallic. <laughs> this one is an anti-aircraft shell. <laughs> what sort of mentalist do you... I'm going to say this without fear of libeling someone. What sort of mentalist do you have to be to... Uh, tell me they didn't do what I think they did. Well, it wasn't for the reason that you think, probably. It was because he it's had... suspected an enemy out there. <laughs> <laughs> he, um, he had piles and he was in the habit of... <laughs> he had piles and he was in the habit of replacing them with the safest of options, the anti-aircraft shell. And this is from the 30s, so it's not, you know, very long ago. Um, and it really is just a great example of the absolute craziness, you know, that, that people will do, whether they it's for sexual reasons or whether it's just because they, you know, they get used to treating themselves like the woman over there with the cork in her head. They get used to doing something and it seems normal. 
Well, there's treating yourself in uh, every sense, uh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, and what's really funny about this cabinet is that we have an awful lot of pins and pencils and long objects that were placed in people's um, bladders and found in people's bladders. And my first query was, what on earth was going on? Was there nothing else to do apart from this? But then I spoke to somebody about it and, um, you know, people used to have cystitis. They didn't have what we have now. They didn't have medical knowledge. They thought that perhaps the hole was closing over. So that is why I said before, you know, you look at something like this and you think, you know, good grief, this doesn't seem like something Victorians would do. But it makes sense if they were trying to self-treat in some way and reopen holes. Um, Unfortunately, pins and things would get lost stuck in the bladder um, and then they would become calcified um, by the sort of the, the crystals in the urine so we have a lot of urinary stones all around here as well which were removed after death do you happen to know whether it's a live show um, I'm hoping it's not. <laughs> you, you haven't checked? But I haven't checked. Uh, it may be a good idea to get that done. That'll be on the to-do list. <laughs> yes. This place is full of surprises. <laughs> um, I mean, what, a, what a way to go that would be. <laughs> I know, absolutely, yeah. That's, what a multiple story. <laughs> well, I hope you had a great New Year's celebration and are looking forward to 2015 with great positivity. All the best wishes from Londonist Out Loud for the new year. We'll be taking a week off next week, but we'll be back again in January with more stories, historical and contemporary, from in and around London. Have a very happy new year. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.